Hello, this is Beth Maples Bay, and this is Lesbian Echoes, a podcast about lesbians in Appalachia and beyond. Let's listen to the stories of lesbians over 70 and all the rich experiences they have to share. I can't wait to hear their stories. Can you? Sophie is a 71-year-old lesbian who has allowed me to tell her story, and for that I am very proud and grateful. As I said, she's 71. She came out in 1963. She knew she was gay. Of course, at first, she was only 13, so she wasn't really sexual yet. Eventually, she did experiment with classmates and neighbors, as many of us do, and she decided that that was indeed her sexual orientation. So, at 15, she headed out from her home in Greenwich Village, I'm sorry, from her home in Long Island, and she headed out to Greenwich Village and chose about, oh, I don't know, to go an hour to the city um, on the subway. She paid her 15 cents. Of course, she was sneaking out, as many of us did. And she began looking for lesbians. It took many, many years to find any. The social isolation must have been terrible in those days. This is the 60s. Um, There wasn't really much of anything for lesbians or gays, for that matter. Um, She looked and looked, and finally she found a bar. But... (laughs) They were very frightening to her. The lesbians there were sort of what we might today call leather dykes um, in old school sense. Uh, the, the butchers were all leathered up with their chains and their boots and whatnot, and their partners were all high, high femmes with all the makeup and high teased hair. and. If you even look at one of the fems as a butch, you might get assaulted. So she she moved. She didn't want to go there anymore. She began to look elsewhere, and um, of course she did know she was butch, but just not that kind of butch. Um, she was the type of person that was always partnered in long-term relationships most of the time. Um, one, three of them. One was a doctor, one was a workaholic, and then one was a teacher. And we can talk about those in length later. Uh, As far as boys and men, they were always off-putting to her. And her were, they were torture. Um, she, She was young and couldn't articulate this perhaps but I think it was just part of her recognizing that women are oppressed in the culture of patriarchy but I may be injecting myself there 
she found a community with gay men. There were a few lesbians, but it was primarily gay men, and she went to three bars. One was called Duchess, one was called Cookie, and the other one was called the Tent of Always. Um, and it was all these drag queens. There, 50 drag queens, there might be two to five women, and there was a pattern of partying, as it were. From it, it opened at nine o'clock at night, and the drag queens would come in and start to drink and tell their sob stories until around eleven, when the high fam drag queens showed up and did shows and entertained everyone. And she says she had a really good time there. Um, you know, most of these bars had tiny little dance floors. I don't know if you remember Stonewall at all or have seen pictures of the bars back then, but most of them were little hole-in-the-wall places. And um, these little tiny dance floors are kind of iconic, I think. Um, she was about 17 at that time. And she was jailbait, but she met someone who was 30, and they had a year-long relationship, and she had a good time and developed a circle of friends. During that time, finally, at 17, she got a car, which made it only a 45-minute drive to, from Long Island to Greenwich Village, where, of course, there was no parking. So it was still a struggle to get to a place to connect with the community. She did eventually meet a, a lesbian couple and some queens on Long Island. That was better than what she had before. But um, when it came to her parents, when she finally came out, they put her in therapy immediately um, because they were sure there's just something wrong with her. And the, it discontinued for three years. Uh, at the end of that, this brilliant psychotherapist concluded that she didn't like men. Well, yes, no, duh. Um, then there was a man that started following her around. And it was during that time that her parents divorced, and he was quite persistent, wouldn't leave her alone. And so she moved in with him, and it was absolutely disastrous, as can be expected. So that ended, and she began working two jobs. Of course, at that time, she was very closeted in the workplace. She had few workplace friends, or friends in general. Uh, and I suppose, as far as influences, she had no role models. Right? At this time, we're still in the 60s, and she found a role model in Liberace, or maybe not a role model, but a kinship, someone to look up to, someone who was famous, who was obviously gay. And that was her only connection to anyone who was a role model for her. Um, yeah, there was no lib women's liberation at that time. 
no feminist movement to hang on to. So it was like total isolation. But then in 1969, there was Stonewall. And then she heard about that. She wasn't there, but she heard about it. And it was it was a, a, a turning point. Um, in the early 70s, of course, the women's movement began. And she was, um, she met Bella Abzug and Betty Friedan and several other women who were quite famous. And so uh, uh, Carla J was another one. And she, so she did have some role models at that time. And then one day she heard about a lesbian dance in Harlem. The Amazon lesbian dance at St. John the Divine of all places, a church. It's a famous church, as a matter of fact. And so she went, and there were 300 lesbians there. She was a foot off the floor. She thought they were all gorgeous. This was, as I said, the Amazon lesbian dance, the one that was traditionally held the night before Gay Pride. She tells me that this was very empowering, just to be in the, a room with all these women. Um, I, I know for myself, the lesbian dances figured highly in, in my experience as coming out and, and meeting other women. The, the dances were just so empowering. So I'll go on to the next day. And that was Gay Pride. It, it was June. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. At the dance, it was June, you know, Pride Month. And it was 90 degrees. And it got with 300 women in a room in June, 90 degrees. I, it, apparently, there wasn't any air conditioning. So they did what a lot of us did at Mitchell's. They all took off the shirts. And she said she hadn't seen so many, quote, titties in her life. <laughs> oh, those were the days. But the next day, of course, it was the New York City Gay Pride March. And it was organized in such a way that they started on Broadway and um, lined up. A 10 to 6 or something like that. Anyway, the, the, there were a few hundred in the lineup at that time, mostly men. And there, there, were, there was a fairy. A fairy was always there, a fairy on rollerblades. Anyhow, they marched to Central Park, which was a five-mile march in 90-degree weather on asphalt. And by the time they reached Central Park, they just absolutely collapsed. Eventually, they changed it to end. The bars influenced it to change the parade to end in Greenwich Village where they were. So the collapse 
a need for liquid resuscitation would benefit them <laughs> because at, eventually there were over half a million people in those marches. And then the next big thing in her life, she was part of Nassau County now, the National Organization of Women. She chaired the Lesbian Task Force for five years as Keith, K-E-I-F. That was her butch name. Um, and she basically did consciousness raising for women. Um, that was the role of lesbians in now for many years. And we began to see that we weren't going to be empowered, fully empowered in that context. And so that's when the split occurred and the women's movement went one way and the lesbian feminist movement went another. Um, that, that, that's, they just weren't meeting the needs of lesbians. And then, of course, there was the women's bookstore. There was one on Long Island called Alternative Corner. Alternative Corner. And they had like 20, 200 women who were regular. Um, they had discussions and meetings on all kinds of topics, everything from women's health to uh, child custody, uh, you name it. The, uh, you know, alternative jobs, counseling, or introduction to alternative employment, all kinds of things. And the, the women's bookstores um, have dwindled in, in recent years, and they are greatly missed by many of us. Then we get to the late 80s and the AIDS epidemic. Um, she saw many of the men that she had known perish from this horrible disease. And these, these were friends that she had known initially in her community and to see them get sick and die which is so devastating. Um, it was a sad period. Le lesbians took a, a, a pivotal role in assisting gay men who had AIDS in getting them the things that they need, healthcare, transportation, all sorts of things. It was just a very depressing time for the gay and lesbian community. Uh, lesbians, of course, as women, are the caregivers, and we reached out and helped our brothers during that time period. Um, it was during this period of time that she became a Reiki healer. Um, she also attended Queens College and um, another university and got a BA in English. She also trained and became a massage therapist and worked in a hospital. Um, she did have the opportunity to have 
friends on Long Island at one point, uh, a, a couple of lesbians and a few drag queens, which was, you, you know, an encouragement to, to not have to go all the way to the city to find your own. There was a basic, bigger lesbian bar that she did go to. The, the, she couldn't remember quite the first word, but it was something light. And it, it was, um, it was a big place. And this was the disco period uh, when, you know, Don, John Travolta and the Bee Gees, and suddenly it became chic to be gay. It, and this athletic butch, who was very nice looking, was getting girls right and left. <laughs> and it also sort of came together for, for her then. Um, and in her words, she just decided to ride the wave. Um, she, and that was a period where she really had fun. She, that's when she was going to college. She got an apartment with three roomies. She went to junior college and then Queens College and NYU. Um, Eventually, she began to work in a physical therapy unit in a hospital. And she met a pre-med and a coach chick. She called her and fell head over heels and began to follow her heart. This woman was pre-med and she wound up getting her medical school in Des Moines um, to become an osteopath, Des Moines, Iowa. But Sue stayed in New York and they had one of those long-distance relationships that we, many of us are familiar with. And the phone calls began getting longer and longer and later and later. And Sue had to work. And her partner said, well, this is the only time I can call you after I have studied. So finally, Sue moved to Des Moines in her little 1976 Toyota Corolla whose payments were, by the way, $84 a month. And she went out there to the Midwest, and she said anytime anyone met her, they said, oh, you're from New York, are you Jewish? Not that there's anything wrong with being Jewish, it's just, she's not Jewish. And the stereotype was that everyone in New York is Jewish, apparently. But, um, she continued and she worked and her partner would go to school all day and then study all night long and apparently she began to use chemicals to help her stay awake. Eventually that became a problem but she did go ahead and graduate and eventually finished residency and became a doctor and is still a doctor today in Brooklyn. There was one gay bar in Des Moines, but the only people that they were really able to meet were two gay men and uh, two lesbians. They they hung out while they were there in Des Moines. 
high. We still pretty isolated. Um, moving on to her second relationship was a workaholic. And the workaholic made a lot of money. And Sue was working as well, so they, they had a very nice income. And they were able to buy a house. And in fact, his her mother came around at this time because she liked the workaholic. <laughs> and it had been 25 years since Sue's mom had been part of her life. So this was a big deal. She did come around. And Sue and the workaholic lived a good life. They went to Broadway. They did this and that and the other. But with the workaholic comes the long hours, of course. And so Sue began to get lonely and increasingly leaned on her friends. And that sort of led to the end of the relationship. She moved to Pennsylvania to a community called New Hope, Pennsylvania. Um, very artsy little place, lots of LGBT entertainment venues, restaurants, B&Bs, whatnot. Um, but it was very pricey. And so across the little bridge was New Jersey. And that side is a little less pricey. And she moved there and began teaching massage therapy and met her major relationship. The woman was a teacher. They were together for 19 years. Uh, the teacher had two daughters, 16 and 9 at the time, both going to parochial schools. And then came a three-year divorce. It was very traumatic and very stressful. I think that this couldn't, that many women who have children who are lesbians may be able to relate to this. I know I do. Uh, many of us go through this with husbands who are angry because they've been left. And it seems they're more interested in court mandates and they're infuriated by the fact that their wife has left them for a woman. Well, eventually there was a settlement. She got a little money out of the house and one garbage bag full of belongings. She left apparently with the clothes on her back. They did at that, at that time, they pulled their money and bought a row house, a tiny little row house, but the payments were low and something they could afford. The younger daughter, um, would they had visitation with the younger daughter. Um, and eventually the younger daughter just told her father that she wanted to spend all of her weekend with her mommy. Well, damn, the court instituted some very draconian measures. Sue was not to be alone with the child 
at the home. She was not to be in the same room with her alone. She was not to be in the car with her alone. Um, and this is something that is maybe familiar to many of you who have gone through a divorce while being in a lesbian relationship. It, it, I know it's familiar for me. It's just, it, it's horrible. Um, it's very common. And they just try to isolate the lesbian partner from the mother and the children. Of course, it didn't work. But long story short, she wound up with three grandchildren, two boys and a girl. And until this COVID thing hit, Yaya, as she's called by the grandchildren, she got to see them one, about once a week. But COVID has appeared with a lot of our family relationships, and Sue is no exception. As far as aging, she's pretty much checked off her bucket list. She went to Woodstock. She's been all over Europe. She's been to London 15 times. She's really a world traveler. She's grateful that she thinks she's helped some people along the way. She helped the older daughter who was initially estranged from her mother, but did come around. And um, they built a relationship. And eventually she helped her and her husband find a home. She had a little inheritance from her mother who had passed away and she wanted to do some good in the world so she helped this little young fledgling family buy a house. As far as being older, she thinks that there needs to be more respect in the lesbian community for and the LGBT community for elders. I would agree with that. Um, and I just wanted to say that the conversation was just so wonderful. I enjoyed it a great deal. And I hope that you enjoyed hearing her story here on Lesbian Echoes. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Lesbian Echoes. Be sure to check in with us next time as we bring the stories of lesbians' lives to you. Thank you.